Amen. Good morning. Well, it's nice to see all of you. Um, if you're visiting, we're very glad that you've joined us. And those of you who prayed for my family while we were on vacation, thank you. For vacation, we drove 3,795 miles. Such a, such a good decision. So restful and wonderful. Uh, would you please join me in John chapter 6? So we are together jumping back into our series, Following Jesus Together. So please, please turn there, John chapter 6. I do want to say a special thanks to Christian Cunningham for serving us so well these last three weeks in the pulpit, preaching through Psalm 119. I'm glad that 20 of you appreciated it. He feels most warmed by that. Uh, it's a blessing to have such a, uh, a gifted young man uh, to be able to know the word so well and preach so boldly and proclaim Christ uh, so carefully. So that's, that's a gift to our church and to our high schoolers to whom he is once again preaching right now. So, so praise the Lord for him. So this is sermon number 17 of following Jesus together. We're in the Gospel of John. We are moving into now John chapter 6, in which we encounter one of the most beloved and amazing statements that Jesus makes, I am the bread of life. 71 verses. It's a very large text. We're only going to take the first part this morning, the first 34 verses. Uh, The tricky thing is, what is said this morning the conclusions are what we're going to read of next time together, Lord willing. So, so please take notes. Please take attention. Be attentive to what Jesus says to us this morning because it connects so intricately to what we're going to hear next week. Well, I'm going to read the first five verses uh, to set his word before us, pray, and then we'll look to the Lord and his word this morning. So join me in John 6, beginning in verse 1. By the way, if you don't have a Bible... Please raise your hand. We would love to get one in your laps. And if you want to keep it, we'd love it to be a gift to you. Uh, Scott Porter will bring you one. Keep that hand high and up and he'll get it to you. John 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Well, that's God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that Jesus knew and still knows the answer to that question. Where the bread comes from, the bread of life. It is Christ himself. This morning, Father, by your spirit, would you 
entice each of our stomachs to be hungry for Jesus, that we would feast on him and his word through your gospel. Father, all of us have arrived. We've congregated this morning with hearts in various places and states. And what we need most is to believe and be reminded that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has lived our lives for us in our place, taken our sins upon himself upon that cross, and has broken the teeth of death and risen valiantly from the grave as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so as we peer into your word this morning, would you make that evident for every heart? Save the lost. Heal the hurting, Lord. Rebuke and bring back the wayward. And comfort all of our souls with Christ, we pray. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's people said, Amen. If you were to flip through John and just look back to some of the episodes that we have been following Jesus through, you'll see now in John 6 that we're in a transition point in this larger gospel account. And this chapter 6 brings us into a new section, which will carry us all the way to chapter 12. And in these uh, chapters, we are going to be confronted with the famous I am statements of Jesus. And the first major I am statement is here. Jesus tells us, I am the bread of life. What we're also going to see is that this passage this morning is the beginning. It's the first of all of the major confrontations and teachings that Jesus has with the multitudes who followed him. So there was the one-on-one with the Samaritan woman one-on-one with Nicodemus. There was the small setting in the temple where Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, that duel that he had verbally with the religious leaders. Uh, He's done a few healings, but now there is a crowd around him, and our text reads 5,000 men. So adding in the women and children who are present, it's it's easily well over 15,000 people that Jesus is on this mountain. So this is a big transition now in John's strategy to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ. Our text this morning presents a major metaphor, I am the bread of life, that begs a question. And we're going to see the question that unfolds through the first 34 verses this morning. The question that is posed to you this morning is this, what kind of God do you want? Do you want a God who saves but makes no demands on your life? Do you want a Jesus who is made in your own image? Or do you this morning want to be changed into Jesus' image? Do you want a God who saves and makes demands on your whole life? What Jesus is going to do is he is going to preach to this this ultra-large crowd. And next week we'll see that many and most of this crowd departs and abandons Jesus because of the demands that Jesus makes, the requirements that Jesus makes of them, namely to believe. So our outline this morning, for those of you taking notes, comes to us in just two parts. Here they are. They're questions. Number one, 
is Jesus the prophet greater than Moses or should we be looking for somebody else? And that's verses 1 to 21, a large section. The answer to that question will then bring us to the next point. It's this, what is the work of God that we should be doing? So if Jesus is the prophet from point one, then how do we respond in point number two? And point number two is verses 22 to 34. Again, another long section. Well, let's jump right in and look at these long sections. Number one, this question, is Jesus the prophet greater than Moses? Let me read the first 21 verses. Or rather, 15 verses is what I'll read right now. After this, verse 1, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus said this to test Philip, for he knew himself, for he himself knew rather what he would do. Well, Philip answered him, eight months worth of wages, 200 denarii, Worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Verse 10. And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So verse 13, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, here in these first 15 verses, we are at one of the most famous episodes of Jesus' life that's recorded in the gospel accounts. In fact, this is one of the few accounts that is harmonized across all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus feeds an estimated crowd of 15,000 by performing this miracle of taking the small loaf and the small fish of this little boy and miraculously multiplying it to feed the multitudes. 
And as I mentioned, we say 15,000 because the text only numbers the men. It doesn't count the children, including the boy who gave him the food, and the boy's mom, and and so on. And so we estimate at least 15,000, probably 20,000 people in attendance. A mega crowd. And because this passage is so familiar to us, as is often the case with our familiarity, our familiarity can distract us from the deeper richness that's contained in this passage. What do I mean? Well, well, you know that with the Bible, there's no throwaway words. There are, there are no unimportant inspired words because all the words are inspired, spoken by God. There's no throwaway words. And so when, you, when you're getting into this passage in your morning devotion, maybe you read it before coming to church this morning, you're reading through verses 1, 2, and 3 fairly quickly. You're getting these geographical details, these time stamps, and, and you may perceive them as, well, throwaway words, or maybe just settings to get to the meat where we can hear Jesus teach. But all the words are deliberate and intentional. L- look again at verses 3 and 4. It tells us, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Is that important or unimportant? I'm going to suggest to you that it's very important that Jesus is sitting on a mountain. And next, in verse 4, John the author tells us, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And if you read through it, that almost seems a wasteful or useless statement because nothing else about the Passover is said in these 71 verses. So why would he say that? Is he merely just giving us a time stamp for time stamp sake? The answer, of course, is no. So these these time stamps, the geographical location of a mountain may seem irrelevant, but that's not the case. Why? Like dye dropped in water... These words serve to color this passage with a hue that brings even deeper richness and meaning to this long section. In other words, as John 6 opens, and as John the Apostle inspired says mountain and Passover, that's two drops of color into the water of this text through which now the whole text is dyed that color. What do I mean? Well, Passover, we've seen it already, we've seen it a number of times together as a church, but the word Passover serves as a hyperlink text to one of the most significant periods in Israel's history. When that word Passover is mentioned, it's a hyperlink text that suddenly furnishes our mind. It's like a light switch goes on and all of this Passover furniture is in our mind that now is going to provide seating and decor for this chapter 6. What's the Passover? You might recall that it's the story of God using Moses to finally deliver the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt through the final Passover judgment when they were slaves in Egypt. It's in which the people of Israel feasted on a roasted lamb in their homes. The lamb whose blood they used to cover the doorposts of their homes. And in seeing the blood, when God sent the angel of death through Egypt, 
when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorposts, the people were delivered. The, the, firstborns, the firstborn children were spared in their homes. And it's this Passover, this final, the ten plagues against the Egyptians, way back in the second book of the Bible. It's this Passover that leads, the ex, leads to the Exodus, where the people exit Egypt. Moses leads them. He brings them through the water into the wilderness And do you remember what happened with the people in the wilderness? They grumbled and they complained. And what did they want? They wanted to return to Egypt. Why? Because they were hungry and they were thirsty. The time of the Exodus, as God led them through the water and to Mount Sinai, when then Moses went up on the mountain, that whole period called the Exodus... Passover, empty stomachs, grumbling and complaining on top of the mountain, hyperlink text, most significant moment in the Old Testament to which all the writing Old Testament prophets look back at and then promise is going to happen again in the future. It's the Passover. But do you remember what God did for Israel's hungry bellies in the wilderness? They grumbled, they complained, and so God miraculously provided them Bread from heaven, manna, and he also provided quail, which blew in from the sea, the text tells us. And this brought Israel to the base of Mount Sinai, where Moses went up to receive God's word and establish the Mosaic covenant. So here, back in John 6, John notes it's the Passover, and the Passover was the annual commemorative feast of that moment in which every Israelite would go to, Israel, go to Jerusalem if they could, and they would participate in this meal remembering and reenacting what it means for God to have done back then and his promise to do it again soon. The Passover is coming, and then here is Jesus suddenly feeding Over 15,000 people miraculously. Moses provided manna, or rather God through Moses provided manna. And now Jesus is doing the same. And more than that, our text tells us that Jesus is going up on a mountain to do this. I think that's significant because not four verses prior... You look right back up at the end of John chapter 5 and Jesus is preaching about Moses and how Moses preached about Jesus. And to disobey Moses is to disobey Jesus. To disbelieve Jesus is to disbelieve Moses. And so Moses is the man who went up on the mountain. So these two links, Jesus going on a mountain feeding the multitudes miraculously, the Passover is at hand, time stamps in salvation history that entire Exodus event. And we as readers following Jesus along, our hearts are now set to expect, is it happening again? Is the second Exodus unfolding? The clustering of all these details, which at first seem irrelevant, prove to actually be some of the most relevant pieces of this text, and they set the perspective. It's this. Is Jesus the new and greater Moses? If you sit down and you just read long segments of your Bible, you know that in Deuteronomy 
18, Moses promised that God would raise up a prophet. Not just any old prophet, but a prophet like Moses, who would do Moses-like things, but on a greater scale. That is the question this text asks of the people here and asks of us. Do we believe that this is who Jesus is? Even more so, if you had time, because we don't. But later, if you go to Exodus 16, and you go to Numbers 11, and you read them along with John 6, Exodus 16, write that down, Numbers 11, write that down, our text this morning, John 6, you read those passages, and you will see that John chapter 6 is a mere reenactment of those episodes in Exodus 16 and Numbers 11, when the people begged God for food and grumbled against him. So, so what do we see here in our text at hand? There's no food for the multitudes. Eight months wages is not enough to feed them all. The only thing they have is a little boy's sack lunch his mom gave him. And this boy comes to Jesus or to the disciples and offers it for the people. And these impossible circumstances are the perfect circumstances for Jesus. Did you hear that? Because that sentence should overlay your life. These impossible circumstances for the people are the perfect circumstances for Jesus. And so, in an amazing act of hospitality, God in the flesh, Jesus, directs the people to sit Jesus prays, and then interestingly, it's the disciples who distribute the food, but the text portrays Jesus as the one who's distributing the food. He is the host. The people have come to him, and he is feeding these hungry people who have followed Jesus because the signs they saw Jesus doing. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, note this, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You see, verse 11 tells us, in parallel to what happened with Moses and the manna, verse 11 says, every person ate as much as they wanted. These hungry people, probably from all walks of life, rich and poor, outcast and popular, came to Jesus. They didn't have food. Jesus feeds them. But Jesus doesn't just feed them a meager amount. God gives them a feast. He fills them to the full so they had all that they wanted until they wanted nothing more. Jesus satisfied their bellies. And verse 13 notes that there were 12 full baskets of leftovers. What do you do with that? People try to invent hidden spiritual meanings with things like this and we're not supposed to do that. Rather, there's a sweet and humorous irony here. What's the irony? You see, in this passage, 
This is where in John we meet the 12 disciples. And the 12 disciples who served Jesus by serving the crowds had nothing to serve the crowds with. It's, it was the 12 apostles who were empty-handed in the beginning and a little boy solved the problem. But now you can just see the camera cutting to their faces as they each carry the full load of food that Jesus has provided. Twelve baskets would have been collected by the twelve apostles. Each has a basket, even Judas. I wonder what their expressions were. How, how were they responding to Jesus when he did this miracle? What was going on in their hearts as they saw Jesus provide the sign of this bread and this fish? Well, what was the response of the multitudes? Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving then that they, the crowds, were about to come and take Jesus by force to make Jesus king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What's going on here? Isn't Jesus the king of the universe? Yes. Isn't this an opportune time? A multitude of people, 15, 20, 25,000, who are now championing the idea, heralding, this is the prophet, this is the king, let's take him, let's anoint him king, let's recover our land from the evil Romans. Here's the promised one of the prophets. Let's take him, let's seat him on the throne, let's usher in his kingdom and glory. But what, what's Jesus' response? It's almost um, anti-evangelistic. Isn't this why Jesus came? To show who he was? And yet Jesus withdraws again to the mountain by himself. Why? Well, back in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and all through these early chapters, Jesus tells us he knows what's in the heart of people. He knows what's in the heart of man, and we'll return to that. But, but what are they saying? The crowds are coming to our help. What is it they are saying when they say that Jesus is the prophet? Well, as I said, Deuteronomy 18, Moses promised that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. So the expectation of the Bible is a new and true greater Moses was going to come. But Jesus walked away. And if we keep reading the Bible, we discover that this prophet, his identity grows in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the Twelve, where this prophet will also be the Davidic king. And he will be the one who has an eternal throne that reigns forever. And yet again, Jesus just walks away. And we'll find out why in the next section. But, but here, this episode leaves us with another strange moment. The people are clamoring, searching for Jesus. They're going to force him to become king. Jesus slips through the crown and goes even higher up onto the mountain. And then our scene closes with a, a scene so short you almost blink and it's gone. But, but look at how our scene closes in verses 16 to 21. 
So the people are looking for Jesus. Jesus goes on the mountain. I'm sure the disciples were brought into the perplexity and people are probably saying, where's Christ or where's, where's Jesus? Let's make him king. And look at what this says, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea, verse 18, became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad. They were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. And then this section comes to a close. What in the world is that? If you if you read John 6 and verses 1 to 71, it's one tight literary unit except this piece, which seems to be some strange rabbit trail or some episode that is that is amazing. But what happens here, here's why this is here. Well, well, one, we'll look at it in a moment, but it's proving who Christ really is. But more than that, this private episode with the disciples is going to set up Peter's response at the very end of the chapter in contrast to the response of the crowds. But we are left with this question. The crowds are yelling, this is the prophet. And we are expected to listen to this and in our own hearts ask that question, is this the prophet? Because if he is the prophet, then he demands total allegiance of our lives. An allegiance that looks like taking up our crosses daily and following him. So is Jesus the prophet? Well, here he is walking on water. And so the answer is yes and more. Now, liberal scholars who don't believe in miracles and such, if, 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 if you can get past this part of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, everything else is easy to believe. Sort of. So some liberal scholars have tried to say, well, Jesus was skirting the shallow shore, walking on the water, and these guys were getting blown around. They thought that, but no, the text is clear. They were three to four miles in the sea and had a ways to go yet still, and Jesus walks to them on the water. But remember, Jesus went on a mountain. The Passover's at hand. Thinking of Moses has been summoned in our minds. Moses walked through the water on dry ground, Jesus walks on the stormy sea and all the waves did was serve to wash his feet because he is the God of creation. And it's the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples to calm their fear and fatigue. Our text says, it is I. That's not a very good translation. It's in the Greek, it's his famous phrase, ego eimi. I am. It is the emphatic statement which Jesus will say later, I am the bread of life. It's what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well. 
he said, I am. And here, Jesus walks up in the storm, and all he utters is, I am. And his disciples are calmed. He enters the boat. Perhaps the storm ceased, and they were brought to shore. I like how one commentator, Edward Klink, says, he says, standing where only God can stand, Jesus declares what only God can claim. I am. That is that Jesus is the one of the unconsumed burning bush in Exodus 3, who alone can walk on the waves of the sea, as it says, says rather in Job 9.8. What Jesus is doing is he's continuing to prove that he is far greater than Moses because he is the second person of the Trinity made flesh. The disciples were full of fear, but now they can be full of faith. Why? Is it because he walked on water? Well, yes, but I'm going to suggest it's more than that. It's Jesus saying, ego eimi, I am. M. And in saying that proves that into their minds is ushered that none other than right before them is the voice of the burning bush, the word made flesh. He is God with them. I wonder if these guys had thought they had seen it all. They saw the invalid man healed. They know Jesus had that private conversation with the Samaritan woman and then went and evangelized the town they heard Jesus' teaching, but I wonder if they thought he had seen it all. But now here's Jesus standing on the water, maybe the, the stormy waves peeling on either side of him, making way for the Lord, and perhaps his, his ankles getting wet because the sea is serving him by, by washing his feet as his servant. Here is the great I am in the flesh. And I wonder, too, the boat is perhaps rocking and then getting still, and they're fearful, they're fretting, and all next to them, most likely, are those 12 baskets of food that they collected. Because it was their responsibility to take it and take it with them. And that would probably be the food that would feed them on their journey as they continued the ministry. And at this moment, it's this moment that will furnish Peter's words, as I said, at the end of this chapter. So, so we'll see them at the end of this message. But the question then that we asked at the beginning, is Jesus the true prophet greater than Moses? And the answer is yes, but only the disciples truly see. And this leads us to the second and final point. What is the work of God we should be doing? How, how should you respond to this? I wonder what you think. Maybe if you just got yourself together, Maybe if you clean yourself up a bit, you know those, those sins you keep sinning. The lying, the laziness, the theft, the lust, the whatever. Maybe this kind of God, he, he, he demands perfection. And so maybe what you need to do is you, you just need to, to, to clean yourself up enough to tip those scales to put yourself in God's favor. You, is that it? Or maybe, like these multitudes, we just kind of need to get enough of humanity together 
to make things good and demand that Jesus come back and we make things right and then we make him king. Well, let's see. Number two, what is the work of God that we should be doing? This is John 6, 22 through 34. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Well, then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe. That you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate men in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. That's where our text stops for this morning. What is the work of God that we should be doing? Personalize that. What is the work of God that you should be doing? What is the demand of Christ in this text upon all who have ears to hear? I I love it. Uh, Verse 25, right? They say to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus, as always, cuts straight to the heart of the matter. Rabbi, when did you get here? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's a rebuke and that's a challenge. Because it's likely that in their own hearts, the crowds, they were self-deceiving and self-swindling because that's what sin and blindness does to us. And perhaps they thought they were coming to Jesus to see more of his miracles and signs. And Jesus calls them out. He had compassion and fed them. But listen, 
with Jesus calling them out and issuing this challenge, this is also grace. Why? Because Jesus has soft words and stern words. And both are gracious because Jesus uses both to expose our hearts and in seeing our hearts wayward and rebellion against God and in seeing that allows us by His grace and His Spirit to repent. So, so then think back to the previous point. This is the prophet. Let's capture him and make him king. And Jesus escapes to the mountain. Why? Now we have the answer to verse 15. It's verse 26. You're seeking me not because you saw signs. You're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, this is the sad irony of this text. The people were absolutely right about Jesus being both the prophet and the king. And they were absolutely wrong in why they were excited about those truths. So they, um, maybe intellectually, that's probably too strong or helpful of a word. They knew with their minds, this is the prophet and the king. They probably heard about it in synagogue, but they actually had no idea what that meant. Yes, Jesus is the true and eternal prophet, infinitely greater than Moses because Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. Yes, Jesus is the eternal king of creation. And yet the people were entirely wrong in their understanding and motive of Jesus and Jesus' offices. What does that mean? In verse 26, the people were thinking selfishly, in verse 26, Jesus exposes they were thinking fleshly and with their belly. Meaning, here's the big idea. They want a God who saves politically, but makes no demands spiritually. The crowds want a prophet who delivers, but does not demand a prophet who delivers and saves, but does not dictate obedience to God's word. They want all the benefits of Jesus without actually having to follow Jesus. They want a king who will reign, but not require anything of them. They just want full bellies. They want the benefits without the benefactor. And here's the scary thing. Peeking ahead to next week's text, most of these people had been following Jesus for some time. This is not the religious leaders exclusively who he's dueling with. These are people who may have gone to their families and said, oh, I found the Messiah, come and follow him with me. These are people who've abandoned their jobs and, and have been following him for days. That's why they don't have food because they've become nomads. And yet the, what this moment does is Jesus exposes to them the kind of savior they want. They want a savior in their own image. And in their own likeness, not the Savior whom God provides. They want a Savior who can give them a nice life, a happy marriage, much leisure and recreation, maybe a stable bank account, but makes no demands on their lives. No demands on the words they say, the thoughts they think, 
and the attitudes they have and the emotions they feel and the things they do. They just want a sky genie. And oh, how much does that characterize the church in the West today? Especially with the heresy of the health and wealth gospel. Many of the disciples will leave Jesus, and I'm sure that many of us who have been followers of Christ for any period of time and been in the church for a while have seen people come to Jesus, repent and believe the gospel and be excited and jump all in and, and serve. And then when things got hard or, or certain demands were made upon them, uh, they loved their sin and lifestyle more than they loved the Savior. When they, when they learned that Jesus' teaching about sexuality outside of marriage and inside marriage and, and gender and, and men and women and, and roles, when, when they learn about what true repentance is, they discover that that's too difficult or I don't agree, and so they abandon Christ. And in doing so, the text will show us next week showing that they actually were never saved. They were false converts. The sober warning, my friends, is this. What kind of Savior do you want? And what kind of Savior are you currently following? Are you following a Jesus in your own image? That he actually looks a lot like you look in the mirror? Or are you following a Savior who demands nothing less than total allegiance Dying to yourself, throwing a funeral for yourself every morning, taking up your cross and following him. That, that's the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is the Savior who saves and makes the demand of owning nothing less than the entirety of every moment of your existence. Every thought of yours is accountable to Jesus and belongs to him. Every action of yours is accountable to Jesus and belongs to him. Every action and on down you can go. Nothing in your life does not belong to Jesus. Here's why. Because you have been bought by Christ. He is the creator and so he owns every all of creation. Every man and woman he owns because he's the creator. But for those of us who have been purchased by his blood on the cross, he doubly owns us because he made us and now he has saved us. And those of us who are saved, who have been born again, John chapter 3, our propensity, because of remaining sin, is to have that internal struggle of wanting a savior in our own image. But the ministry of the word, as the spirit of God takes the word and works in our souls, is that the Spirit of God moves in us to ultimately recognize that we can't, won't, and don't want a Savior in our image because our image is nothing. Christ's image is everything. He is the perfection of perfection. It's the beauty of His holiness. It's the pleasure of His presence. It's the wisdom of His mind. He is the second person of the Trinity. And so we want to be like Him, not Him like us. So listen to what Jesus says says in this text. Listen to what he says next in verse 27. What is the work of God that we should be doing? Verse 27, do not work, the Savior says. Do not work for the food that perishes. He fed their bellies yesterday. 
And today they're wanting another food feeding. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, and here's the irony. You want to work? Here's the work. This is the work of God. That you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is admonishing them that their perspective is wrong by appealing to the base need that we all have, food and drink for survival and the survival of our family and friends. They labor. They see only with fleshly eyes. They're spiritually dead. They only want full bellies, not just for themselves, probably for friends and family. And on a personal level, Jesus appeals to their purpose in life which is worldly and fleshly rather than eternal and spiritual. Yes, they need their daily bread, but more than that, they need the eternal bread that gives them eternal life. You see, Jesus is doing with this super large crowd what he did privately with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He's exposing their hearts to them. Remember, he said to her, go call your husband. And here he's saying, don't labor for food that perishes. Labor for food that endures through eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you freely. And here in verse 29, Jesus makes the play on words. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. So the work God wants us to do turns out to not be a work at all. It turns out to be belief in Jesus. So it's not cleaning yourself up and tipping the scales to make yourself good enough or at least better than the people around you. You see, it's Jesus and the Father who have been working their gospel plans. We saw that in 517, remember? Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. The man gets up, takes his mat, and then he says, my Father and I are working until now, and so the Jews want to kill him. So Jesus' appeal to them to believe, that's what they're to do. That's the work, a non-work. Believe that Jesus is is the prophet, and believe that Jesus is the king, which they declared, but don't believe. That's the sad irony of the text. They are there for the benefits of the Savior, but not the Savior. They're content to have a heaven full of all the gifts of heaven without the giver of heaven, God himself. Look at how they respond. Uh, probably maybe less than 24 hours previous, they're just lounging on the hilltop, straw in their mouth, just full bellies eating fish sandwiches. And they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're making the connection. Even they're getting it, hey, he miraculously fed us yesterday. So they're bringing Moses to the forefront. In other words, they just want Jesus. Notice they even offer the sign. Did you catch that? What sign do you perform? And they're not asking Jesus to raise the dead or heal the sick because they were following him because they saw him healing the sick. No, they're asking for another fish sandwich. Their God is still their belly. You see, they heard Jesus preach, they saw Jesus' signs, 
And those were insufficient to save them. Why? Put John chapter 3 right here. Or we'll see it next week. They needed to be born from above. Remember what we saw in John chapter 3? You can't even see or enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I don't know if they catch yet that Jesus just said He. They're still thinking fleshly. They're still thinking another uh, loaf of bread. But verse 33, Jesus becomes increasingly clear, and he'll get clearer as the text goes on next week. The bread of God is a he, and unlike Moses, this he gives life to the world. Moses gave manna to Israel. Jesus is going to give life to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And notice their response that echoes the Samaritan woman at the end of our passage in verse 31. Or no, 34. What did the Samaritan woman say when Jesus appealed to her thirst? Give me a drink. And she said to him, Sir, this is John 4, 15. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, because of her thirst, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And here in 634, the crowds reply, Sir, give us this bread always. Now, we have to stop here this morning. And Lord willing, we'll pick up the remainder of our text next time. But it's it's the question before us in closing. It's the question that we heard at the beginning. We're seeing again. It's verse 27. Do you work for food that perishes or for the food that endures for eternal life? which the Son of Man will give to you. Remember, the play on work here is belief. Our bent as people in rebellion against God is to make ourselves right with God. We want to take credit for our salvation. Every human being outside of Christ wants to work to put ourselves into God's favor. It's it's when we sin the sin And we start making promises to God. I'll never do it again. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And when I do this, that, and the other, I do these things. What are you doing? You're sinning in your repentance. Because you're trying to clean yourself up. Now, we put off sin. Jesus demands holiness. But when we begin to bargain with God, God, I promise to never do that again. When we do that, we're sinning even more in our repentance. Did you know that you can sin by repenting? If you repent the wrong way, which is not repentance. You're just adding a new species of sin to your sin. And so the question is, what do you work for? Are you working for your salvation or are you believing for your salvation? Remember, the continental drift of our life is to go from the prodigal son to the self-righteous older brother. And the self-righteous older brother did not like the feast the father gave to the prodigal son because the older brother was good at being obedient. God, haven't you seen my obedience? Dad, why haven't you rewarded me for those things? Where are you? 
are, are Jesus' teachings drawing you near or pushing you away? So I think you can see where this episode is going. Do you know what the crowds do? I told you at the beginning, nearly all of them abandoned Jesus. In fact, the text paints the picture at the very end that the only ones left following Jesus are his disciples, including Judas, who betrayed him. These people want a Savior who saves but makes no demands on their lives. But Jesus requires total and unswerving allegiance And so the multitudes abandon him, even many of his disciples. The churchgoers leave because Jesus' demands got, well, the offer of the world was sweeter in their mouths than the offer of Christ. And so the the question is singular for us. How about you? Do you carry your cross daily out of love for the Savior? Or do you think Jesus is to be treated like a a sky genie to meet your needs? To give you an easy life and to get you out of the binds that you cause for yourself? Can we go back and take an audit on your prayer life the last day, week, month? And will we discover that the only times that you prayed to Christ were the times that you had gotten yourself into a bind? Now, to be sure, God does use hardship to get our attention. But the question is, our prayer life reveals what we believe about Christ and his gospel. Has Jesus, as the prophet, is he the true and perfect Savior who has removed all of our sins on the cross, past, present, and future, and therefore beckons us and welcomes us to boldly approach the throne of grace, not the throne of judgment, or, or do we treat Jesus like a genie where really what we're showing is that we trust in ourselves 99% of the time and then when we blow it, then we need to go to Jesus and ask him to fix things. You see, Peter's words at the very end of this passage in verse 66 show the heart of the disciple. Show the heart of a true believer. Now, Peter and the twelve encountered Jesus walking on the water, but now listen to what Jesus says. Everyone has abandoned Christ except for the twelve. And after this, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. And if I can insert there, it's because Jesus told them that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And more than that, Jesus preached God's sovereignty in salvation. And that was hard for their ears to hear, and so they left him. And so Jesus said to the twelve in verse 67, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So friend, you you may have come in here this morning, and for all of us, if you've been a believer for decades upon decades, or you're considering Christ, you're not even considering Christ, you don't even know why you came to church this morning, here's what you need to hear from Jesus. The ironic work of God is not to work, but to believe that Jesus and Jesus alone saves 
and that he is better and greater and more magnificent than anything that our minds can conjure or invent. And it's his image and his likeness and his saving that we need most. That we are already bankrupt. We are already diseased and sick. And he is the one who comes and gives us the gift and makes us rich in his gospel through giving us eternal life. And he's the one who promises eternal healing in heaven. What are you working for? Because I hope you see, you can't work. Do you know why? There's no work to do. Do you know why? Jesus finished the work. And in his finishing of the work, it frees us now to stumble, to fall, to pick each other up, and by his spirit and his grace, to receive afresh that forgiveness he already gave and continue to follow our perfect Savior as we follow him imperfectly. And so I ask you this, which Jesus do you follow? Let's pray. Father, your spirit, we ask, is the only one who can intervene and answer that question for us, which Jesus we follow. Lord, we want to follow you. And so, Lord, we believe and help our unbelief. Oh, Lord, thank you for your amazing grace that does not turn us away, but you draw near to us in our sin, suffering, and shame. Thank you, Jesus. But, Jesus, we are sobered by seeing the reaction of the crowd who ultimately turns from you. And I pray that if any friends here this morning hear your words, that you would give them a heart to believe and that their joy would be to believe and not abandon, not walk away but to cherish and treasure you. So Lord, we are yours. Thank you, Jesus, for your gospel grace, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, it is fitting.